0: Over the centuries, humanity has held dreams of a world beyond war, and even of perpetual peace. But in recent decades, a more restrained ambition has emerged. The ideal of humane war, where conflict between and within nations still exists, but is regulated by an ever more sophisticated patchwork of laws and conventions. Since September 11, 2001, this notion of humane war has intersected with a new wave of foreign intervention but in seeking to make war more humane and embed it in a context of rights, have we also made it more legitimate? Are the forever wars so extensive and ambiguous in reach precisely because they claim to be humane? And have ethical wars essentially created a license for wars without end? With me to discuss that is Samuel Moyne, whose new book, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War, offers a powerful overview of the ethics of force in the 20th and 21st centuries. Sam, welcome
1: to Navara FM. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Uh,
0: Can can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your work, and where Humane fits more broadly within the books that you've published?
1: So I'm a historian by training, and I work as a law professor in the United States. And for about a decade, I worked on where the idea and politics and law of human rights came from. Uh, And I wrote a few books about that topic. Kind of, you know, worrying that they're they're a good thing, but they're not tr- uh, sufficiently transformative, um, and they coexist with our neoliberal world, uh, and that caused a lot of controversy. Um, and then I turn my attention to the laws of war, uh, and there are myths told about where they came from, too, which I'm kind of challenging in this book, and I try to show that. Actually, it's a pretty new thing to actually transform combat in a humane direction. And while, once again, it's not bad to do so, it has some sinister consequences that I think we've been witnessing in the last couple of decades. You start the book
0: in a slightly surprising way. You, you talk about Tolstoy, I think it's the first and second chapters, not exclusively, but he, he figures quite prominently. When one thinks of the peace movement or the anti-war movement, one thinks of Vietnam, post-World War II, students, hippies, summer of love. But actually, there was a very powerful anti-war movement prior to World War I that kind of emerges out of the Franco-Prussian War. Tolstoy is kind of emblematic of that for you, it seems. Can you speak a little bit about the scale and scope and ambitions of that movement?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um- you know, one of the goals of this book is to rehabilitate the, the peace movement, which has, uh, you know, almost disappeared in my country and not been, you know, that forceful in others. Um, but back in the 19th century, as with, you know, things like poverty and slavery, it became imaginable to contain or even end war, and new movements sprang up. Before, there had been philosophers who'd talked about the kind of hypothetical possibility of peace forever, but um, lots of people began to mobilize once the European peace broke down uh, in the 1850s. Tolstoy was one of the most radical uh, because he thought soldiers should just all object to serving, and there would be no way states could, you know, tangle with each other without, uh, you know, troops. Uh, I focus on Tolstoy. Mainly because he was a pioneer in worrying about something we've achieved now, humane war. But in the first half of the book, I'm equally interested in the kind of, you know, breadth of the peace movement, you know, often led by women um, that wasn't necessarily pacifist, but did want to figure out how to get states to take the alternative of war off the table, largely in the transatlantic. Amongst European countries, and as you say, they attracted massive support um, both before World War I and after, and it kind of led to our world order in both kind of progressive and troubling ways yeah, I
0: never really thought that the sort of breakdown of the Treaty of Vienna is what catalyzes that but that's that's a really original kind of thought for me anyway and 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 at the at the vanguard of this wasn't just Tolstoy but another um novelist, um, and I'd never heard of this person before. This novel, Lay Down Your Arms, was this best-selling book, effectively a a kind of pacifist call to action. Can you talk a little bit about that, the role of literature in catalyzing the the peace movement?
1: Sure. So, you know, Bertha von Suttner, to whom you're referring, was an Austrian noblewoman, uh, and for a while after Queen Victoria died, probably the most famous woman in the transatlantic world. She published her book, uh, which... You know, kind of came to her in a flash and you know, didn't have a prehistory of, you know, agitating around war, but she scored this bestseller that everyone read across the North Atlantic. And really, she registered for a new reading public, a white reading public, you know, at the height of empire, at least that when, you know, states across the Atlantic and within Europe went to war, you know, the the. The sons and husbands and brothers of women like von Suttner could die and were dying in massive numbers. And where this had just been accepted as kind of part of life for millennia, uh, the, the, the new significance of the kind of, you know, bourgeoisie in this era made uh, it kind of crucial for statesmen to at least pay lip service to peace as their goal. Uh, so Suttner won the 1905 Nobel Peace Prize, the, f- the the fifth one, and she inspired really the prize because she'd been the secretary of Alfred Nobel. And what interests me about her is not just that she galvanized you know tens of thousands of people to join the peace movement and hundreds of thousands more to affiliate with it, but that she was also quite skeptical of this idea that instead of, Agitating for peace, we should try to make war humane instead.
0: She just found that a ridiculous conception, like Tolstoy.
1: Well, they both they both feared that you know if you humanize war, you may entrench it. And you know what interests me about that is that right from the beginning, when you know, especially the Swiss in what becomes the Red Cross set out on their campaign to make war more humane, there were these skeptics. And they may have been proved wrong for a while, but in our time, their worry that in a sense, making war less atrocious could entrench it, I think has been vindicated. And so that's why I'm trying to rehabilitate them as kind of, you know, prophets who spoke too soon. And there's a strange resemblance between what they
0: were saying, um, and what you see with sort of military theorists like von Clausewitz, who were offering to us anyway, not to them and their, their sort of uh, contemporaries, counterintuitive conclusions, which was if you make war as brutal and as violent and as bloody as, as possible, if you effectively make it an, an unlimited enterprise without constraints, right. that is actually the most quote unquote humane thing to do because it right. means that you get it done and you raise the cost and you disincentivize it and, you know, conflict lasts days or weeks or months rather than years and decades. That's a kind of interesting conversation between the peace movement, between military theorists, and I don't think anybody thinks von Clausewitz is, you know, a particularly um, pacifistically-minded person. What, what happens to that over the course of the early 20th, mid-20th century, that idea that if you're as ferocious as possible, actually... You might not immediately think it, but that's that's the most sensible thing to do in terms of utility maximization and human happiness.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, there were there were kind of three groups of reformers negotiating with each other around war in this period. There were the humanizers, first the Swiss, uh, who wanted to control war, make it more mild, use international law to protect soldiers and later civilians, and then there were the the intensifiers, like. Carl von Clausewitz and others who just thought you should make it as atrocious as possible. And these two groups were, were, were always kind of trying to get this, the third group, the pacifiers to kind of side with them. So the, uh, Clausewitz and others said, no, we don't care about peace. We care about war, but we'll bring peace if you un- let us off the leash. And so he said that, exactly as you suggest, that if you allow the most intense forms of war, it will end more quickly. Um, Tolstoy in War and Peace has one of his main characters, Prince Andrei, say, if you allow war to remain brutal, uh, it will break out less frequently, uh, because we'll only go to war when we really know, we really wanna kind of incur the risk and it really matters. Um, Now, of course, the the Swiss who favored humanity said, no, if you follow our program, you can hasten peace because, you know, making war less brutal is about kind of getting your foot in the door, uh, you know, and eventually humanity will lead to peace. Now, I mean, my own view is that, you know, both the intensifiers and the humanizers were wrong. We can think of brutal wars that break out regularly or last forever. And we can think of humane wars nowadays that also go on with no end in sight. And so Tolstoy eventually says, we just need to pursue peace as an end in its own right. And von Suttner even more says, we need to figure out, not how to work with these humanizers and intensifiers, but have our own plan for world peace, which they they tried to, you know, achieve.
0: And that rationale of von Clausewitz, it might feel like it's a world away. But actually, right. as I was reading this, I thought, wow, these are the arguments that people still rehearse Correct. when they're trying to legitimate Hiroshima, absolutely. Nagasaki, carpet bombing of Dresden. They say, well, look, absolutely, that was appalling. But the calculus was we'd lose quarter of a million U.S. soldiers if we had a land invasion of Japan. You know, similar things were made with regards to Royal Air Force bombings in in, in Germany. When did that stop becoming a mainstream argument?
1: Well, I, th- I think it became harder to make publicly. Um, but in an American tradition that, you know, starts from Clausewitz's Disciple a kind of Prussian who fled the 1848 revolutions and ended up as Abraham Lincoln's lawyer named Francis Lieber um, Through William Tecumseh Sherman through Curtis LeMay who firebombs Tokyo and other Japanese cities uh, And then on into the nuclear age when a lot of people said the threat of absolute Annihilation is what will bring peace and um, you have this tradition of people who insist that ungoverned warfare or the, or the threat of it is not only you know um, a tonic for manliness a, a, in civilization, but it actually helps the weaker too because it's more likely they'll survive if war breaks out less frequently or is shorter when it comes. And I think you know that belief never disappeared. It just became, in an age of massive civilian death, um, less 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 possible to say openly. So when we look at the first phase of the war on terror, or even later phases, we can see that within militaries, um, the you know administration of massive lethal force has never gone away, and so Clausewitzians are alive and well. They just are you know, are embarrassed by the view that the worst forms of violence will bring peace when it's clear to so many that they're really recipes for brutality and, uh, you know, the reverse of peace.
0: And briefly, the the war in the Philippines um, seems like a really important moment between the U.S.'s sort of domestic... Occupation and and, and extermination of indigenous peoples in North America. And then, of course, its status as a world power from the 1930s, effectively, really. But obviously, that's solidified after 1945. Can you talk a little bit, particularly for a British audience, about the role that the United States played in the Philippines and how military doctrine there was inflected by wars against, you know, quote-unquote, Indians?
1: Absolutely. So the... The Americans are in a sense late late come to overseas empire Uh, They've prided themselves different factions have their reasons for staying home on on being a hemispheric power That involved, you know lots of interventions in Latin America over the 19th century There's a whole museum in Mexico City That is just dedicated to the times the United States invaded Mexico uh, in the nineteenth century, um, but the 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 Philippines um, counterinsurgency was crucial because it's the kind of you know first example of a, an American overseas war um, that is fought with the most pitiless methods and then, you know complete disregard for any of the kind of emerging standards that might have been applied in warfare amongst whites. Um, and as you say, from that point, the analogy between so-called Indian war, which Americans have been fighting for centuries at that point, even before there was a United States, and overseas counterinsurgencies become very popular. And what I what I show in the book is just how frequent it was for Americans, first in the Philippines, then in the Pacific War in World War II, uh, especially in hand-to-hand combat on islands, and then in the Korean and Vietnam Wars, to refer to this tradition of Indian War, um, a, a tradition in which you fight savages without limitations on your conduct because they're unworthy of protection or they accept no boundaries themselves, um, is something that you know is enduring and. You know, the interesting question is whether that ever changes. Like Clausewitz's tradition, you can argue that it's alive and well today. You know, Osama bin Laden is codenamed Geronimo uh, when he's killed. And there there are really interesting examples um, of kind of continuities in this tradition of so-called Indian wars, even to the present. And yet what interests me is that in the long run, you have... Uh, an African American president, a non racially white president with, with lots of, of help from a, a, a multiracial elite now in the United States, waging a war, insisting on humane constraints, precisely in view of the fact that the enemies have different race, a different religion, but deserve protection. And this strikes me as a novelty. And so what I want to do is not deny continuities in this long, despicable tradition of Indian war, but to show that the forms of, of kind of American empire can change uh, and take take on a new guise.
0: And I guess another sort of um, continuity is the idea of, of war as pacification, which you see obviously in the Philippines, you see in the Indian wars, you see in the, the forever wars. For Europeans, I think, we view 20th century wars as probably not entirely correctly as these conflicts between major sovereign powers we don't view them as you know what they were in the 19th century in some of the colonial context or counterinsurgency whereas it does feel like that for the US actually world war 2 and 1 they were the exception and that like you say there was this well of ideas and and themes and even you know military tactics and legal frameworks which people were pulling back from yeah the civil war wars of pacification at home and it reminds me of you know before we have the london metropolitan police service in this country we have the royal austral constabulary in ireland and actually it's the example of pacification abroad which allows us to shape thinking domestically and so american military doctrine as an empire you know is 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 so massively shaped by quite a unique experience you know it's a it's a settler colony and I, i i don't really think that's spoken about enough. But I guess going back to um, going back to Obama, his generation of, of politicians clearly shaped by Vietnam to an extraordinary extent. Before we talk about Vietnam and, and more contemporary events, the Korean War. You make an interesting point about war in Korea, which was actually pound for pound, it was the most violent war of the 20th century. Can you talk about the Korean War and the sort of the political impetus behind it, and again, where that sits within these debates around humane war and Clausewitzian sure. war.
1: Sure. So after World War II, uh, the, in a sense, the, the peace movement's dream is realized. It's taken two world wars, but there's a European peace. And it's achieved in the way that Bertha von Suttner, that Austrian noblewoman, had foreseen. America steps in. But the price is that America's um, engagement in the Philippines becomes a kind of global phenomenon. And European empires go into retreat. It takes some, like the Portuguese, longer. Uh, But America becomes the guarantor of, of world order, which means that it begins fighting essentially global wars. And I would say that it it learns european lessons because while we can definitely think of the you know conventional wars as central to european history it's been centuries that european states have been fighting asymmetrical mm-hmm. counterinsurgencies insurgencies the world over uh and kind of claiming to learn a lot about how to do so a good example is you know the malayan counterinsurgency uh, just after world war ii fought by the British Empire, which becomes a kind of source base for the French Empire in Algeria, the United States, and Vietnam. Korea is interesting because, you know, this, this organization of world peace after World War II through the United Nations and the United Nations Charter is, in a sense, respected in the early days. Uh, you know, communist North Korea invades uh, South Korea and the United States organizes a, a permission slip from the new United Nations to defend South Korea. Uh, and, you know, in a kind of daring exploit, General Douglas MacArthur, who's famous for, you know, unconscionable cruelty in the Pacific War uh, uh, it, just five years before, uh, succeeds in pushing, you know, the Singman Rhee's forces to the north. Um, And then he makes a fateful choice to abuse the peace that, you know, he's supposed to be defending by, you know, crossing the demarcation line himself uh, in hopes of, you know, unseating communism in the north. And this is a fateful event because it's the first time that, you know, the United States, supposedly the guarantor of peace, actually begins to conduct its own aggressive war under this new United Nations system. So in a way we're setting up a world in which the United States doesn't have to, you know, be peaceful itself in guaranteeing world peace. It can never get in trouble under international law for doing so even when it breaks it. And the difference is that, you know, in Korea where it it, you know, continues bombing, you know, almost in unrestricted ways, um I try to narrate just the the kind of not just the numbers but just the 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 you know blasted landscape in the north that results. Eventually the United States accepts some constraints on aerial bombardment uh, and on counterinsurgency which no empire has ever done. The problem is that as in Korea it never accepts constraints on going to war. And so Korea, I think, is in a way the crucible for that syndrome, which we live with today.
0: At the time, was, was, was what they did in Korea legal? I mean, and what were the debates around that? So it, it seems to me it's the kind of beginning of, I mean, they wouldn't have called it this, of course, and you're the historian. You think I'm going to be terrible saying this, thinking anachronistically, but kind of liberal interventionism, which is to Correct. say, defying international laws, norms for some greater good.
1: Right.
0: What were people saying? Because obviously, you've got the Nuremberg trials. You've got this growth of of, of right. military legalism. Right.
1: Right. So yeah, absolutely. So, you know, after World War II, there's the United Nations Charter, which says you can't go to war except in two cases, if the United Nations Security Council has authorized it or in self-defense um, at Nuremberg, which we tend to remember as an atrocity trial. In fact, Nazism was condemned for starting illegal wars. And so there seems to be this fledgling new norm. Uh, what happens in Korea is that in that first phase to defend South Korea, uh, the United States gets a Security Council resolution. It has authorization. Um, it, it was lucky because the Soviet representative on the Security Council wasn't present uh, and, you know, for for years after the soviets would veto anything on the security council so it was deadlocked Um, but in that first phase in a sense america was following the rules for better or worse what happens when macarthur decides to press his luck and pursue the north koreans uh before the chinese invaded and led to kind of a three-year quagmire with massive death is kind of you know following the rules and what we learned in Korea is that America doesn't have to no one is going to call it an aggressor in the security council the way that Nuremberg did with the Nazis because America can always veto any such action so you know what, what the the paradox is that you know the end of World War II set up a world peace of a kind but not one that ever applies to American war.
0: And when MacArthur did that, did that have oversight from the executive? How did that relate to democratic political power?
1: So that's it, a huge it, breach, it, historically. It, it, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it, essentially, you know, he chose on his own, but there was tolerance. Um, and later, Harry Truman fired MacArthur, but on kind of on other grounds once the war went south as it, it was a shock that the 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 now communist Chinese State sent troops across the Yalu and in a sense saved the North Korean communist regime which helps account for the close relation of those two states to this day at the time you know, it might have been seen by Americans as the greater good to, you know, oust communism in North Korea. And there was no controversy, kind of amazingly, either over the breach of the peace by the Americans or the kind of, you know, unprecedented bloodshed that's caused as a result of MacArthur's choice. What what strikes me is that, you know, the kinds of controversy you see in Vietnam around whether the war should happen, around how brutal it is, didn't begin in Korea. And so you see this rule breaking without Americans responding in the way they have since.
0: It reminds me of um, something a colleague, you know, James Butler often talks about how, you know, police basically enforce certain practices and the law often catches up. And it feels like it's it's a similar thing here. And I suppose for me, I find that particularly surprising when you consider that the United States has just developed nuclear weapons and there was this major political debate around the fact that they should be subordinate to the executive. You know, the president has the codes. It's not a, it's not a general. Right. Right. And so on the one hand, th- th- you know, MacArthur doesn't have the authority to use tactical nuclear weapons, but he does to do something like this. So you've got, you know, highly legal conversation around that, but then this right. seems, you right. know, far more ambiguous. Right. Vietnam... We'll talk about Vietnam because it's obviously important, but you've already mentioned Nuremberg. Was it the experience of Vietnam that meant that Americans retrospectively looked at Nuremberg differently, and why?
1: So in the, in the early part of Vietnam, you know the, the importance of Nuremberg is that it was an inquest around Nazi aggression. And those who felt that the Vietnam escalation uh, in the later 60s was a mistake said, we're now doing what we said the Nazis, you know, what the the Nazis' worst crime was. Actually, the first people to say this weren't Americans. It was English philosopher Bertrand Russell, uh, French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, and their allies at the so-called Russell Tribunal. Uh, But Americans, to the extent they talked about international law at all in the late 60s, which wasn't that much, never talked about, say, the Geneva Conventions, which became so central to public debate after 9-11. Rather, they talked about the UN Charter and about Nuremberg because the central insight of folks in the 1940s was that starting a war is like a gateway crime. If you start a war, anything can happen, including atrocious uh, crime. But that, you know if you just focus on atrocity then you could have potentially bloodless endless wars you know if you stop war you stop war crimes whereas if the re- the reverse isn't true so it was kind of natural in spite of the horrendous carnage that american bombing was causing napalm was causing that most people who were interested in nuremberg and in international law more generally saw the the norm that mattered as peace after uh, after the revelation of the My Lai massacre uh, in 1969, there there was an activist opportunity to to add atrocity to the kind of to the argument. After all, it had been present at Nuremberg as a concern, not the main concern. Uh, and activists kind of said, if the this illegal war. Has it led to the expectable result illegal war crimes and they pressed their advantage in that? Moment and and help contain the Vietnam War it had taken five years to gain traction in American public debate Part of the reason was a lot of Americans were dying that they succeeded but what's what's interesting to me is that in contrast to what happened after 9-11 the concern about atrocity kind of added fuel to the fire of the anti-war movement. And the, Nuremberg's original, you know, priority placed on aggression, not atrocity, was preserved. The same didn't happen after 9-11. I think we're living with the results.
0: And you write how there was this unprecedented moral clarity for Americans. We, we've not seen it since. It didn't exist before um, after the, the My uh, massacre. And you insinuate, I mean, maybe you explicitly say, it's something I've always believed, that that's intimately connected to the draft. Middle-class Americans were sending their their sons to war. They were coming back either injured, disfigured, dead, drug addicted, you know, acute mental health problems. I think 50,000 US casualties in Vietnam. Extraordinary. Yeah. yeah, extraordinary. You know, even when we think about Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, 57,000 people. And... That was what gave that moral clarity to the conversation. You see, I think, the greatest journalism, I think, in American history is is easily during that period. Is that kind of moral clarity impossible with the deployment, do you think, of of professional armies? Because you get shortly thereafter, Nixon gets rid of the draft, and people, I think, mistakenly say, the draft means we'll fight no more violent wars, when actually it seems like the opposite is the case, and that actually it was the draft... I'm not here sort of advocating conscription, but it's just as a social phenomenon, the draft meant that actually there was this moral clarity with regards to the debate around peace and war.
1: You know, you're you're pointing to this sobering fact that, you know, people care about their own first and foremost. You know, Bertha von Suttner had gained traction for having a peace movement in the first place by playing on, you know, the fears of Europeans that their own white, Husbands, br- brothers and sons would die you know, without much thought about the kind of you know, empires globally that those same people had you know, maintained for centuries at the cost of much more death. The same in Vietnam. The fact that Americans were dying concerned Americans, not the four to six million Vietnamese who died in that conflict and, and, and in its aftermath you know e- an equal or greater number and so you know th- this 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 i think is an important lesson because it 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 it's it's you know it's 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 maybe frustrating that it's hard to generate more kind of global concern and for the the kind of the the, the victims who are suffering in greater numbers at the same time these activists take advantage of this to, to to kind of build something. I narrate in the book how there's a big debate about what the consequences of the abolition of the draft are going to be with some people saying it'll make war harder since there will only be a volunteer force and you'll have to actually drum up support for your wars. Uh, but others contending that the reverse will happen. Now, in the long run, I think that debate, you know, is Um, Is really interesting, but doesn't help think about the contemporary form of humane forever war Which after all relies less and less on any troops whether conscripted or volunteer Um, and It doesn't seem you know when it came to the Afghan and, and Iraq interventions before the current form of the war on terror that the abolition of the draft made that big a difference um, one reason is that the military has proved to be our version of the welfare state instead of not having one, and what that means is that you can actually find a lot of takers for the largesse that you can get from the state if you, you know, volunteer to be part of the army. And so, you know, there have been crises around, you know, uh, getting enough young people to join the military in the United States including in the course of the Afghan and Iraq campaigns but it was it was always more of a minimal problem and not the you know major obstruction that people feared um, yeah or hoped would you know would would block wars back when these debates were happening in the early 70s
0: yeah I guess uh, the U- and the UK is different here because of course conscription is eliminated I think Mid-fifties, I think shortly after Korea. But it does make you think, you know, you look at Iraq, you look at Afghanistan, you've got six hundred and fifty legislators in parliament. If a fifth or a quarter of them had children, or right. children that if their children were in the armed forces, they would think quite differently about those those right. walls of aggression. Even now in regards to Ukraine, Russia, I'm not making any comment about that. You know, I think Ukraine has the right to defend itself, it can join whatever military alliance it sees fit. But I think that the rhetoric around these things would be significantly different if journalists, politicians, policymakers, influencers actually had a quite strong vested interest in, in not going to war. And like you say, with the introduction of professional armies, that does change quite dramatically.
1: I, be, I agree with you. I mean, we, we could argue that, you know, the, the, the force of you know, uh, of, you know, patriotism or jingoism has been strong enough for legislators to override their fears for their constituents or their own children uh, and send a lot of young people to death over the centuries. You know, so I think we'd have to look in, 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 in some given situation you know, how big the security you know, imperative was weighing on them and on the people at large, since we can't deny that war can become quite popular when it seems worth fighting, at least in its early phases, that was true in World War One, which became extraordinarily unpopular given the millions who died, uh, and in other wars, including you know colonial uh, counterinsurgent wars, it, it seemed crucial for the state to defend its empire and to find or force men to help, and so I think everything would depend on you know what the other kind of incentives were for people in power and for ordinary people you know confused about what's important and necessary although i agree with you ultimately that you know having your your friends and family die is ought to be a reason not to let the state uh, send them to war
0: 911 um which I uh, in the book is is that's the, the culmination of the book is 9/11 and then the Obama presidency and it's all leading up to it. But that—that's the pivot, I think, or it feels to me of the whole book. We think of the the Bush presidency as lawless, as you know, dismissive of international norms and procedures. But actually, you make again quite a counterintuitive argument, which is actually no, it was in many ways nodding to those things that previously had been either dismissed or ignored by by the U.S. Can, can you explain that a little bit? How is? Sure. The response to 911 lawful
1: so the, you know this this part of the book is supposed to be edgy because I think many of us learned after 9 11 to conclude that the trouble with Americans in in this era was that they set up law-free zones and they disregarded the law I want to argue that actually the 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 ultimate trouble was that they followed it Uh, or at least part of it, and especially the rules that are supposed to make war humane. Now, it's certainly true that in the early going, uh, George W. Bush and his servants, notably a lawyer I talk about named John Yu, suspended the protections of the Geneva Conventions, at least with respect to al-Qaeda fighters. Um, And this was seen as unholy. Actually, though, you know, maybe the amazing fact was that that suspension had to take place at all. Uh, And what I try to argue is that, you know, these rules either had not been humane in content before the 1970s or had just been so easy to disregard that their suspension had been unnecessary. And so the fact that John Yu had to argue his way around them I think, testified to this new reality that the rules were humane in content and they mattered. And after all, remember that all the American wars before 9-11 were much worse, both for soldiers on on every side of these wars and for the innocent civilians who died in much greater numbers, which is not at all to trivialize what happened after 9-11. But to kind of get at you know, how American war is changing. So absolutely, I start my account of the early years of 9-11 by, in a sense, um, trying to suggest that even this moment of lawlessness kind of bespeaks a new legal reality where culturally people care about foreign victims to an unprecedented extent, and the, the rules that are supposed to protect them have a new significance that forces Americans to try and fail to deny uh, their application.
0: Yeah, I remember in this country, um, Abu Ghraib and so on. How it was reported was this is absolutely remarkable. And like you say, decades previously, nobody would have would have cared. You know, Britain operated torture centres in Kenya, Malaya, Aden. You know, uh, Cyprus, Greece. You, you know, the, the list is endless and. And yet by the early 21st century, there's a major ethical concern for for publics. Uh, this John Yoo guy, because you don't really go into detail. You talk about obviously his role here and how over the years he kind of falls out of favor and people I think quite rightly dismiss his his, his scholarship, his work. How's he viewed today?
1: I'd say he, he was blackballed um, by the legal community. Um, for his shoddy work around the suspension of these protections, notably the prohibition of torture, and he some tried to oust him from his tenured position as a Berkeley law professor, to which he returned after serving in the Bush administration. Uh, but he kept that job, and he remains in it. And I th- I think that he, you know he's an interesting figure in, in the way I portray him for two reasons. First, in a sense, he represents a, a last gasp of this older American tradition that we talked about before. And it's not um, accidental that he was a child of Korean immigrants who, whose whole consciousness was formed around the fact that uh, you know American lawlessness was necessary in his view and memory to protect korea um, from communism but he's significant for another reason because he became unpopular um, for some of his views rather than others namely the the memos he wrote denying the applicability of these humane constraints on war even as he wrote other memos justifying the Afghan intervention under international law, justifying the Iraq war under international law. And of course, those kinds of laws after Vietnam were never as central to American consciousness as these rules around, you know, protecting detainees and civilians. And it's illustrative that when Barack Obama came into office, His almost first act was commanding the shredding of John Yu's memos, but not all of them, only those about the rules on the conduct of war, not whether you can go in the first place. And those memos, which are basically licenses to commit the gateway crime of starting an illegal war, remain on the books. And every president now can take advantage of John Yu's work in decreeing, in a sense, that there are no limits to going to war, if a president decides he wants to do so,
0: but so, uh, America can't wage war war illegally by Well, we,
1: we already knew that, you know, from the earlier discussion, because in this, in the sense that it can always veto any Security Council sure. resolution that. It, but but there's there. It's still amazing that use arguments about. Constitutional war powers, which, you know, say that the president under the Constitution can do what he wants and really aggressive arguments that the UN Charter doesn't matter much um, survive. And, you know, there's the the, they in a sense help the the fact that that didn't get as much attention helps us understand why the war on terror has been an era without an anti-war movement. Without concern about that part of John Yu's work, which has gone uncontested, and intense concern about his work um, permitting brutality, even though the result of pushing back on that part of John Yu's work was to remove a bug from John Yu's own program of endless war. It's just more humane now.
0: I think one thing that really stands out for me in all of this is the assassination of Amwa uh, Al. Our lucky, our lucky. uh butchering his name there. He was a U.S. national who was assassinated, didn't have a trial. And I believe, I think one of his children, I think it was a young girl, was also-
1: I a, think boy a week later. Was a boy?
0: Yeah. And he also had, a, I think he had a, there was a young girl, maybe it was a not necessarily a relation, but anyway, there were a, num- a number of children also died as oh, you know, sure, sort of yeah. collateral damage. And it's sort of it's really imprinted in my mind is this picture of a sweet girl, five, six years old, mm-hmm. something like that. And that to me at the time, I thought, this is extraordinary. They're, they're executing, they're executing, assassinating their own nationals. And this doesn't seem to have any sort of legal framework. Is it right or wrong? And of course, there was, there was something of an ethical debate going on in, in the press, not much. Because again, I find that just so deeply concerning when you look at, for instance, in this country, maybe you're familiar with her a little bit, um, with, with, with ISIS, um, Shamima Begum. And, you know, who, who is able to be a, a UK national, you know? Um, Shamima Begum isn't and uh, similar for al Al-Aki when he was um, hit by a, a Reaper drone or a Predator mm-hmm. drone what, what was the response to that sort of intervention because of course that happened under the Obama presidency and like you say right. Obama presented himself as this anti-war candidate you know right. he wasn't in favor of going to Iraq in 2003 what was the popular response to that
1: so y- y- it was it was the most intense you know pushback that the early drone program received, um, but only because it was an American who died. Uh, and the legal debate, you know, I think sadly was turned out to be much more about whether Americans should have special protections under the Constitution when the, the kind of more fundamental debate about whether America should be able to fight this kind of war against anyone and kill anyone uh, with with targeted killing whether by armed drone or by standoff missile or by sending special forces was was quite simply missed. So in, in, in a way it goes back to our discussion of the kind of you know the privilege of that our fellow citizens get in our moral consciousness even though you know, um if 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 Americans provided more protection to their own and Brits did the same, they could just kill one another's bad guys. Uh well, I, I think, you know, the, the more the, the the really revealing thing about the Alaki debate was that it kind of selected out some victims because they happened to carry US passports even though they were similarly situated in in Yemen in this case uh, as a lot of non-Americans who died equally in violation of international law and as part of an illegal war but doesn't that matter in so much as
0: he is a US citizen and that you know that's a legal community is there, doesn't that matter what, because then of course if you're allowed to kill him in yemen you can kill an american tourist on a holiday in hawaii using a reaper drone and i wonder what sure. i mean not hawaii it's u.s sovereign territory sure in in the uk so i i mean that does seem like a big transgression
1: it is and and of course from the perspective of of you know our citizenship it should it should be the case that our fellow citizens have extra protections from their own state you know but you know to me it's 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 in a sense a missing the point because you know, if, if we said, OK, it's, you know, we look at the, at the deployment of drones. The United States never used them in Western Europe. It, 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 it actually, some of its spokesmen said, we could never strike even against a non-American if the threat was in Paris. It asserted this authority, a kind of license to kill anyone, American or not only in certain places and i think what that tells us that is that it's it's really not a policy that that's about the nationality of the target it's about the you know where they are on the face of the earth what kind of threat they pose maybe what race and religion they are to go back to some of these kind of enduring themes of indian war and you know it 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 would be a good thing to have special protections for our fellow citizens. But if humans, as such, have none in wars that can be fought in these, you know, uh, what Obama, you know, referred to as bad lands, well, then I think we're setting up, you know, a pretty frightening world, not to mention an illegal one.
0: You, you talk about the, um, the 2016 presidential race, and, and Donald Trump runs an explicitly anti war ticket. I mean, often. Lying, as was often the case with him, saying, I've always been opposed to the war. And then, you know, it wasn't necessarily true. Uh, He wins South Carolina, something by 10 points. This was some of which highly supportive of of George W. Bush. He capsizes the sort of thinking on this, particularly within the Republican establishment. And you talk about, you know, you have these two successive presidents, Obama and then Trump, who present themselves as anti-war candidates, which actually for somebody in the UK is... Unthinkable. You know, we had somebody who ran as an anti-war candidate for prime minister and he was destroyed. Right. But the idea that you can have somebody who, you know, a very uh, professorial, you know, Harvard educated, uh, right. academic, elegant East Coast intelligentsia. And then you've got Donald Trump, you know, two kind of completely different political archetypes in the US imagination yes. actually right. saying relatively similar things and both right. win. And right. then here it's completely absent. I mean, that made me feel quite right. jealous for a moment. Right. But then, of course, it's coupled with the reality, which is these anti-war candidates carry on with these wars. But increasingly, and again, you you, you insinuate this quite heavily, maybe it's going to be the topic of another book one day, <laughs> how how global war is effectively becoming a form of policing. Right. And actually, right. we don't think of what they're doing as war anymore, if it's right. a drone strike in in Iraq to hit Soleimani or if it's to get our in you know in, in the Iranian peninsula can you talk about that a bit this relationship now between anti-war populism it's appropriation by political elites and right. and humane war right
1: it's it's a it's it's an amazing topic because i think it it gets us to the heart of american political culture you know when when obama ran against hillary clinton it it was providential that you know, he had given this speech five years before, in 2003, against the Iraq war. Now, the truth is that once he became a senator, he had voted for, you know, war funding throughout. She tried to say that, but she was so tarred with the mistake of the Iraq war that she went down. Um, now, if we look at at what he actually says, it's a very selective anti-war campaign. Um, He's aware that the, the, a, a kind of more vigorous anti-war campaign of the kind that had caused George McGovern after Vietnam to go down to catastrophic defeat is unviable, even for a Democrat. So his, his criticisms of American foreign policy are modest, and even when he makes them, he calls for a new form of war, the kind of shadow war that he ultimately brings about. I think it's more amazing... What Donald Trump did on the campaign trail, partly because he's just a more brazen liar. But that a Republican could attack on the South Carolina debate stage all of his fellows for the kind of unacknowledged mistake of the Iraq War, which it still was in Republican circles, was an extraordinary move at the time. And you can look after that debate at the press basically saying his candidacy has ended Mm. and yet they were wrong he ascended in the polls he beat the republicans and hillary again and so you you're absolutely right to point to the electoral legitimation that you know some kind of anti-war stance can have the scary thing is that that electoral legitimation probably comes From the fact that this early form of the war on terror which involved a lot of american death had become unpopular with a lot of wounded uh soldiers you know coming home and upset uh, voting for trump in in really extraordinary numbers veteran support for trump was just through the roof and you know obama's response uh, uh to you know his victory was not to give up On the war on terror, but to reinvent it in this more shadowy and humane form. And what I try to show is that, you know, even as he struggled to withdraw troops even beyond where Obama did, Trump, you know, was locked into the the humane shadow war. He tried to make it more brutal. He promised he would do so. But these this new syndrome, I think, caught him up, too. And so he He's an interesting figure because he his presidency, whatever he said going into it, you know, testifies to the the fact that Obama seems to have created something pretty enduring, um, something harder to challenge because the more interventionist forms with lots of troops of the war on terror are a thing of the past. What remains is Obama's handiwork, which Trump, you know, certainly didn't remove. Didn't make more brutal either, but didn't curtail, even as he tried to kind of withdraw troops as Biden finished. So yeah, going to Biden, the incumbent, you've got withdrawal
0: from Afghanistan last year. I mean, that just had a, a collective meltdown from the media and the political class in the United States. Even in this country, had the Labour Party saying, well, if the US is pulling out, well, we should go back in. And you think, well, that's a that's a death mission for whatever UK soldiers you send over there. They seemed oblivious to that. They just seemed addicted addicted to this idea of, of humane war, when I say humane war, the humanitarian intervention, we're going in there right. for some noble greater good, even though, I mean, Afghanistan after 20 years, it's quite clear that's yeah. negligible. I mean, we can yeah. talk about that. Um, people people say, well, more girls in education and so on and so forth. I mean, these are quite, there's certainly new bases by which people are arguing for war and drone strikes and military occupation, right. certainly right. novel. Um, so Biden does this to what extent is that a break with humane war? Because it's, you know, it's it's this visceral, highly mediatized withdrawal. I mean, there are you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't even think drone strikes don't even really happen anymore in Afghanistan. Maybe in Waziristan on the border or whatnot, but in the heartlands, not at all. Is that is that right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So one one thing first that you, you're absolutely right to say that we're in an era when humanitarian ends have been declared for a lot of interventions. What I'm talking about is like humane means even if a state should say that it's purely acting in self-defense after all nobody thinks that striking with drones um is a humanitarian intervention it's an act of self-defense that's supposedly done with more humanity rather than less um it's it's certainly true that afghanistan was justified intermittently along those 20 years um, on, on on grounds that it would improve the humanitarian in, in situation, especially for women. But it began as an act of self-defense mm-hmm. and it was justified as, as such. And, you know, the sad thing is that it set all of those ends back. You know, most of the indicators about which we have information, you know, show that over the 20 years of Western intervention, you know, the lives of ordinary Afghanis was set back. And that's why the Taliban's back in power. Um, Now, on your main question, Biden promised when he withdrew troops, which Obama had begun to do after surging at the very beginning of his presidency to 100,000 and ending with 7,000 eight years later, Trump tried to continue and finish the job and only Biden did. He added that he preserved the the counter terrorist agenda what he called over the horizon operations and what that means is basically drone strikes and special forces which you know had been ramping up for already 15 years you know even as troop withdrawals you know began in Afghanistan and and finished in Iraq now it's certainly also true that Biden has had the counter terrorist uh, you know, programs under review. He used he used them. He used drone strikes as part of the exit from Iraq, um, and we we just don't know how often he's used them. But it looks like a lot less than either Obama or Trump so far. You know, part of the 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 reason not to celebrate though um, is first that he hasn't. You know declared an end to the forever war in giving back any of the kind of, you know, legal authority that American presidents have accreted over the two decades to do things like kill on Warlocky or lots of non-Americans at will. And second, the whole maneuver has been, you know, justified as part of a strategic pivot to a kind of new cold war with China. And if, the old Cold War, as any kind of example, will see not direct confrontation, not direct military confrontation, but war in the periphery once it begins heating up. And my my suspicion is that this era of the invention of humane warfare through which we've just lived will turn out to kind of set a pattern for future great power war. you know. And if a Cold War with China is the, framework for it for those kinds of you know events too we just don't know where they will happen yet towards the end of the book i mean i said that one of the big themes
0: um which i think you could write a great book about and i think that seems to be something you're sort of gesturing towards is the idea that war is giving way to to global policing operations another one is this this theme of automation and you you formulate it so nicely you say the idea of you know humane wars without human oversight you know, is the ultimate humane war is just completely automated right. drones, and right. you know um, we're increasingly seeing automated—I don't know what the word is—but submarines, these these vessels in the seas and the oceans, and of course overland as well. I think any listeners who are familiar with you know Boston Dynamics and the Atlas robot, I mean, the big customers for that is going to be Department of Defense. Right. Um, where does that fit in? The you know the, this idea that fully automated war is you know the, the sort of endpoint of humane war.
1: So it, it it's I think crucial that you know we we staged an early form of the debate amount around humane war with with drones in mind even though you know w- 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 even during that era there were special forces you know pr- you know um small bands of men you know landing for the night to kill um but drones, I think, epitomize in our imagination the new form of war. And of course, the men and women with joysticks far away piloting them. But across this same period, we've seen the invention of so-called autonomous weapon systems, which don't involve any direct human guidance. They're algorithmic. They are programmed by humans to work on their own. And already there's a dispute around what war Um, fought by robots is going to look like now to their credit i complain a lot about humanitarian groups who over the past Mm -hmm. few decades have not focused on whether we have wars but whether they're fought humanely enough yet but some of those groups have reacted in horror to the specter of the coming robot wars and they've started a campaign to stop so-called killer robots which i support um and And yet the the dominant response of states is to welcome this new innovation uh, in warfare, even though what we've seen is that drones are not, you know, a proprietary Western object. Now they're almost, you know, universally, you know, devised by states and even sold to non-state actors. For use in war the 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 this kind of immediate threat of um you know algorithmic war is that the programming will lead to more rather than less violence but the way i end the book is asking again what if the law works what if the programming makes these robots into bloodless police machines I don't want to live in that world, especially when it's some states that are powerful and wealthy that can exercise control over others, over other populations, even if it's less and less violent. And so the book ends that way because I think we've crossed a threshold where we can see the first glimpses of a new kind of war that's less like what we thought war was about killing and injury and more. Like what we think policing ought to be like less violent, you know, asking for inviting surrender of quarry rather than outright killing them, capturing rather than killing for later detention Uh, and having, you know, a set of peoples chiefly in the global north who can rule others in this way doesn't seem to me a good outcome it seems like it's a way of entrenching the global hierarchy within within which we're living. And so humane war is, is in a way uplifting. It's better than brutal war. But if its ultimate form is this kind of bloodless domination, I think it's something we ought to resist before it's too late. Sam, thanks for joining us. Just to those listening,
0: um, Sam's work is really extraordinary. I, I particularly enjoyed The Last Utopia. You are gracing these shores for several months, but you regularly work at Yale, is that right? That's right. Well, I hope you enjoy the rest of your time here in the UK. Thanks for having me.
1: This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com support.